0: This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. You know, it's funny, man. When I first moved to Chicago, again, i been here for close to a year now, 4Degrees um, was definitely one of those startups within the ecosystem that I kept hearing about. You always came up. So so definitely appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, you know, we still have a long ways to go as a company, so I, I'm, I'm excited that people are excited, but uh, I always think about the work ahead, right? Mm.
0: Exactly. As they say, this is like 1% done, right? But this is exciting. That's why we're doing this. This is like about the journey, Um, and it's funny because you you come from a different, I would say, background. Like you were always in entrepreneurship, somewhat, but I, I believe this is your first venture officially, right?
1: That's correct. So yeah, my first venture, uh, it's interesting. I probably see myself as maybe having entered the entrepreneurial scene, like call it like four-ish years ago when I joined Fritzker. So early okay. stage VC fund based here in Chicago. So before then, probably not as much directly, although I found some ways of like working with early stage companies in my free time. Um, but yeah, it's been a quite the career shift and yeah, being, building a company is very different than anything else I've ever done in a way that I really appreciate
0: and I'm definitely gonna gonna spend some time talking about that Uh, but just for people don't know let's kind of you know take it all the way back you studied at Harvard if I'm not mistaken uh, and then you went to uh, to Bain right so you jumped into consulting what one would figure is kind of like the traditional route from Harvard Uh, but curious for people listening especially aspiring founders how was that like especially what you know if you didn't attend Harvard what you usually hear or read about is like the alma mater right it's you know obviously you have a lot of famous people that come out of Harvard, whether it's business school or the med school, whichever program it is, how was that environment like for you? Like, was it actually uh, f- kind of fostering entrepreneurship, or was it more, you know, traditional investment banking consultant uh, route? How how was it like?
1: Yeah, in some ways, I would describe Harvard as being somewhat similar to Chicago in that it's like a college of multiple neighborhoods or multiple like different groups, for lack of a better term, right? And so, there certainly were like clusters of Harvard that were more entrepreneurial and were focused on people going off and building businesses. But like there were large swaths where that wasn't the conversation that people were having. Although of course naturally these things would intermix in different worlds. Uh, okay. And so like for most folks, at least in some of the social circles I was a part of, the dominant paths at the time were like you go into banking, you go into consulting, uh maybe you go to law school or med school. Um, or you go to like politics and go down to D.C. And those are like the big buckets of activity. If you want, with, to,
0: if you want to be a rebel, you go to that side.
1: Yeah. It, exactly, right? <laughs> um, And so those were just kind of the most common things. Every now and again, you did have people would go off and like build and be entrepreneurial. So for instance, actually, this is a weird example. I don't know. I've talked about publicly before. So a good friend of mine who was on, I was on the track team with, he was a couple of years below me and his freshman year roommate actually decided to like drop out like half like after this freshman year we were like you know why would you do this like you know you got to harvard like you know you kind of pulled this off really well for yourself like why make the leap uh that guy is a person by the name of john collison who is one of the two co-founders of stripe which is now about to make like raising around at 70 billion dollars and is uh one of the like one of the preeminent like technology companies of the era right and so like Kind of random. And those are the people you ran into, but to the point you were, you were describing very different clusters. And so depending on the clusters you are a part of, you had more or less exposure to it.
0: Were you within the entrepreneurship cluster?
1: To some extent. So I had enough like contact with that group of people to where I was always excited about like the building of companies and particularly the impact that that could have on like economic development and job creation and the like. Um, but at the time, I myself wasn't incredibly technical. And still to this day, I have some technical skills, but I'm not like particularly so. And so that probably led me down a different path into how I was going to infuse myself into that world
0: very cool and it's funny you bring up the the kind of dropout because that's the other thing right with famous entrepreneurs you hear with zucks with bill gates like it seems like all these very famous Elon. i don't think he even attended uni if i'm not mistaken but um they're all kind of dropouts right and and there's sometimes i think within entrepreneurship this weird connotation with someone who's very academic versus someone who just does the complete opposite right like doesn't get to do and just everything is practical so just the last question on the academic side What lessons did you take from Harvard Harvard, that you actually apply now within your own venture, which is four degrees, which we'll get to in a sec.
1: Yeah, totally. I'll actually answer maybe two questions within that. So the first to, to answer what you described directly. Um, I'd say the biggest thing I learned from Harvard, maybe the two biggest things. The first was actually just learning how to learn very rapidly. So, I mean, the way that you kind of come in and are forced to really study a very broad range of things and yet come away with like a, in a form of intelligence that you could have a real conversation with someone about having six months ago or three months ago had had no exposure to the topic was something that Harvard like ingrained in us. And not only that, but to be able to to communicate that information in a way that actually like felt intelligent. I'd say that was a really big thing I learned from Harvard and something I have a, a lot of appreciation for from that experience. And then the second was like how to work with other People and how to like build relationships with other really smart people um, was something I gained a ton of value from. I mean, a lot of my closest friends to this day are like my college roommates or track teammates or other folks who I met like within the Harvard universe. And although you've I've been in social situations for the entirety of my like life, right? But um, it was a different form of like relationship building that I learned at Harvard that definitely serves me well today and to some extent like kind of dovetails into four degrees. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say is actually what's interesting to me is. I feel like the, there certainly are some very like high-profile cases of entrepreneurs who are dropouts um, who turned out to go build phenomenal companies, and you mentioned a bunch of them, right? So Zuck, uh, Bill Gates, uh, the Collison brothers are great examples. I feel like it's mostly, I don't know, I, f- I forget all of my psychological biases, but I f- I feel like it's mostly like an availability bias right. where like you remember them because like, they're such like high profile. Versions like high of magnitude,
0: that. even though they're fewer numbers. Right.
1: Exactly. And I feel like the, I don't know, the median successful technology entrepreneur is someone who finished <laughs> college um, who had a couple of jobs beforehand is probably in their mid thirties to so maybe even in their forties and not like this young brash, like 18 or 20 year old that we tend to associate when we think of entrepreneurs and I think that actually leads to some folks who otherwise could be great company builders believing that they're too old or that's not for them anymore. And so I always try to comment and comment on it when it's mentioned.
0: Yeah, I no, definitely appreciate that insight. And funny enough, uh, there was a Medium article you, you probably come across it. It was it, they did research on uh, I guess the the unicorns within the U.S. Uh, you know there were certain segments of, of the research, but not to get into details. But I think for the majority of those unicorns, they were established by CEOs who were in their 30s or 40s, in fact. Like, it wasn't your first-time founder relative to the, to the majority, right? Like, we're talking not, you know, one or two outliers that you often hear about. And unfortunately, those are the ones that grab all the headlines, which is why everybody just knows about or, or sticks with these one or three points, you know? Totally. So that, uh, that's definitely interesting. So then you go from Harvard. Um, curious, like, did you, when you were in university, did you, at that point, like, let's say as soon as you graduated, did you think you were going to eventually start your own uh, startup or did you just figure out I'm going to go into consulting or this is going to lead to something eventually? Yeah, so I, I definitely didn't.
1: Um, when I was in college, to give you a little bit of the backdrop, I went to college and the thought process was that like, oh, I I, I know I want to make you know a, a big impact in the world. And specifically, like, I'm most interested in like ways that you create like economic opportunity and job creation for people and like at the time not knowing much else I was like the way you do that is through government right and so like you, you go to school, you go to law school, you become a lawyer, and then from lawyer, you become a politician. And then like, once you get in the positions where you have power, then like, you can make that, those sorts of things happen. Um, and very quickly, I just kind of recognized that that theory of change was at least very difficult, if not just not true at all. <laughs> and so at that point, I recognized that that wasn't going to be the way that if I wanted to have that sort of impact, that at least for me, it wasn't something I was particularly excited about. And so that led me towards. Uh, trying to identify other ways or other places that I could take the things I actually liked about the path I was heading down. So specifically about the law, the thing I appreciated most was you know the very rational, like logic, logical, like problem solving approach they took to things. And I was trying to figure out, well, I really like that. Like, are there ways that I can apply that towards other domains or other worlds that aren't as like kind of as like maybe specific as the law? Um, and I kind of found that in consulting right, which is how do you take these broad, like nebulous problems that large corporations have or small organizations have that ultimately can really move the needle for them if done well um, and learn like essentially how to do that in lots of different situations. And that's what brought me into consulting was recognizing that there was a skill set that I could learn and like hone as a result of doing this that I felt would be beneficial to me kind of no matter what I wanted to do, including in like the economic and job, job creation realm.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, this is another thing too, if you look at most most of the, I guess, top four consulting, right? Whether it's Bain, McKinsey, or whoever you want to put up there, BCG. Um, a lot of, and I have friends who actually went from consulting into entrepreneurship because it's just that model, right? That they, you guys often use like these these structured models, uh, especially in terms of how to tackle problems. I think that's what you've probably come out with. And I, I never went into traditional consulting, so correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I would assume. Right? And that's probably what you're applying today from Bain, right?
1: Totally. I mean, there's a comfort with ambiguity that comes with the role. There's a clear willingness to take a problem that is ambiguous and learn how to structure it down into pieces that actually are solvable. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a comfort with speaking to people who are far your senior in terms of age and experience and like specific domain knowledge, but feeling like you can hold your way like as an equal in that conversation. There's the benefit of learning how to communicate concisely and in a way that very busy people can like easily digest and understand and that logically flows towards a conclusion that's like well backed by data um all of those things are things that benefit me in consulting, and I'd argue in lots of other places and to your point, what's interesting when I look back at it is I think about the cohort of people I knew who were actually at the same like main office I was a part of. There's a very strong population of people who turned out to either like become like senior execs at tech companies or start tech companies of their own or become venture capital investors. And I think a lot of that is, you know, that I think Bain also kind of screened for entrepreneurial people as a part of it, but I think that plus those skill sets ended up like playing pretty well into those worlds.
0: Yeah. So true. So I had a, at the startup, I was, I was at before joining TSX, Alwa.co. One of the, the co-founders was from BCG. Uh, he was actually BCG and I think he went to, Uh, strategy and i think anyways a few a few of the top the top consulting firms but that's one of the things he told me which is what you what you basically stated is digestible content people who have limited focus often c-suite these are usually your clients uh you know you're in a board sometimes there are more than just one people that you're presenting something to often there there might be cynicism you know you're the consultant coming from the outside like show us your value And it's often like there was this culture of like, you have to get your point across more aggressively, like you have to insert, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a honed skill. It sounds easy maybe to a listener, but it's actually very difficult to do in practice.
1: Oh, totally. Totally. And to your point, I mean, I remember there were cases we had at Bain where like, (laughs) ultimately, the mandate was like, figure out how to like take out a bunch of costs out of this business unit. And so you're there, like, working hand in hand with members of that organization whose jobs are potentially on the line if this, like, project goes as well as, like, management hopes for. And you still need to be able to build, like, trust in a working relationship and communicate with them while still also owning those relationships at an executive level and, to your point, communicating in a way that will help them, like, make the right calls. And, like, it just requires, like, that you build a bunch of skills that, you know, honestly, didn't even think you needed to build going in, right? And so those things certainly serve us well today.
0: Amazing. Well, and, and then I think, you know, follows your your story, you then go from consulting and you're like, you know what, I've, I've, I think I've had enough of traveling every week to, to a client. I see you smiling for those listening. Um, and then you, you're like, you know what, I'm going to make a jump into the VC. And for folks who are not in Chicago or not as close to the VC side in the U.S., you joined Ritzker Capital, one of, if not, I think the largest VC fund uh, in Chicago, maybe the Midwest. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. You can speak to that for sure. Um, so you went into the VC side. How was that transition like getting to see companies from the investment side of things?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to the point around the transition, like the biggest thing for me, I kind of mentioned this before when I went when I was talking about my interest going into Harvard and the like, I've always been interested in like matters of like economic like development and job creation. And it became particularly clear to me in that period that Really, where a lot of the dynamism in the American economy was and where the future like jobs were going to be were going to be in and around technology, right? And how kind uh, of the tech companies of today were going to define like the economic realities of the future. And so I started to become really compelled and really excited about spending a bunch of my time with early stage companies. And for me, it then became a question of, well, you know, do I have a particular company or that I'm either super excited about being a part of or like a company that I'm so passionate about that I wanted to start? And I, at least at the time, wasn't able to find that. and was really lucky to get the opportunity to join the team at Pritzker. And so that led to me kind of making the switch. Uh, yeah, and I learned an absolute ton from being on the other side of the table, right? I mean, the...
0: What was the major difference, if I can just ask one thing there before I forget, what was the major difference in terms of the hats you're wearing? Because you're you're talking about this like steep learning curve. What was that major transition for you, aside from getting into VC, but when you were there, from the consulting mindset to the VC mindset?
1: Yeah, so I would say venture is mostly about trying to identify the extreme upside case, right? It requires, like, belief in imagination and, like trying to understand like if the world is as this person across the table who's chosen to bet essentially the next 5, 10, 15 years of their life on this thing if the world is like as they've said it is going to be then like what happens right like how does this like change the industry that they work in Um, how does this create a lot of economic value and ideally value outside of economic value and like is that like something that I can get behind and be excited by And that's generally speaking, not at all related to the kind of thinking you do as a consultant. As a consultant, you are brought in to tackle some very specific problem or maybe a constellation of problems to help a corporation like transform, transform themselves or solve something specific. And there's a ton of value to that. Don't get me wrong, but they're generally not thinking about like, how do I, like, how do I help this company become a hundred X more valuable or like, what shifts in the world do I believe in, and there, ergo, which companies do I think have an opportunity to be like phenomenal growth businesses? That's just a completely different like frame of mind. That requires, like, honestly, different mental approaches. It requires different forms of analysis. It requires spending your time in an entirely different way. Um, and I really appreciated it and enjoyed it. But that's that's definitely the biggest difference in my head.
0: And for people who, I guess, again, aren't tied to the space, obviously, you know, I'm in the ecosystem as well, but maybe for someone who's considering that shift of of where you used to be, um, you know, they'll look at your profile, let's say, and they'll see is at Ritzker present, right? And then they see investor in XYZ company, investor in ABC. So maybe just a quick explanation to simplify things for people uh, in terms of what that actually meant. Like if you're an associate, a senior associate, maybe a principal, you're actually investing in these companies, like what was going on in that world? Just a quick snippet.
1: yeah, so I mean the role of a associate senior associate, principal, et etc, all of those can be different depending on the firm you work in. so in general, you can think of the world of venture as probably having three main buckets of work. Um, so bucket number one is what we describe as sourcing, so essentially trying to identify the companies you think are interesting um, and you think are worth trying to invest into. The second is diligence. So once you've identified those companies and maybe you've gotten them to have a conversation with you, like what are the things you need to understand about the market and the co- competitive landscape and how the company has grown today and the team you'd be working with that would give you conviction on whether you actually want to make that investment or not. And then the third is like portfolio support, like which is once you've made the investments, like how can you actually help that company achieve this long run outcome that you were really excited about when you decided to put the money in. Um, and so. Each one of those have different activities. Um, Some are more analytical in nature. Some are more relational and like relationship building in nature. Um, Some are like just rolling up your sleeves and helping them handle a financial model or the like in nature. But all of those are the kind of activities you're trying to spend your time on in order to ideally not only get a great outcome for the company and the founders that you're working really closely with, but also as a result, get a great outcome for the fund.
0: And before we we roll into four degrees, and I think, dude, from just hearing your story and knowing a little bit about it, uh, obviously more now, I think you probably had like the best recipe for what dovetails into starting your own business because you saw it from the investment landscapes of you're looking to raise capital. You were on that side, you know, long enough to know what what that other side is looking for, but also the the problem-solving hat from the consulting era, you know, to to work on solving a problem which you're tackling now. Last question on the VC side. What was the worst and best presentation you ever came across as a VC that like really stuck with you? Oof.
1: And you obviously um,
0: no name dropping. I don't want to, you know.
1: Yeah, not, no uh, name drop.
0: Not dro- that you would uh, do that. But
1: <laughs> just yeah, saying. probably probably not gonna name drop. Um, let's see. The absolute worst. I don't know that we actually ended up taking a meeting with this company, but I think I remember someone sending like a just a pitch deck over the transom that basically said something along the lines of like death is a major problem we are going to resuscitate the first human by 2030 or something (laughs) like that and it was just like we're just gonna need a lot more information like (laughs) 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 just just gonna need a lot more information than that for, for this meeting to make sense um so that was remarkable um, in its own way. Right. Uh, and then you, you guys made a meme out of that. I'm, I'm <laughs> uh, you know, no comment, no comment. Um, okay. Then let's see. Best presentation. You know, honestly, I can think of a few and this sounds somewhat cliche, but in both of these cases, these entrepreneurs had just incredible storytelling ability yeah. in a way that in a way that, and this is going to be weird when you juxtapose it against my against the example I just gave, but in a way that allowed you to imagine more clearly what was possible should this company succeed, right? And so- The
0: vision part of it almost?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like you know how people talk about Steve Jobs having like a reality distortion field? Yeah. I would almost describe these founders as having that capability in a pitch presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, these, these businesses were actually like real businesses. Like you could look and see like revenue and the usage and all that. And like, you could see sure. like there was actually like a real thing underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say what made those presentations special was the founder storytelling. Like in all of those cases, like you could w- look around and see like the entire room was kind of like enthralled by kind of the vision that they were painting of the future. And we could all very clearly understand that the world would be different if this company succeeded, right? In mm-hmm. some like pretty material and interesting way.
0: Yeah, it's funny, dude. Ben Horowitz actually wrote like a, I guess a block piece or something on this, but the title was literally the company story is the company strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Storytelling division is so critical. I hear that time and time again from some of the best CEOs. Um, and it, it's, it's often not as easy to do, especially with a technical founder, right? So that's probably, that was probably your advantage as well. When you talk about what Harvard meant to you in terms of the communication, I know it's always a work in progress, you know, but, uh, still, man, it, it really makes a big difference and it, it, it takes a lot of practice to do. Like it's not something you can just read and be like, all right, you know, we're, we're good to go.
1: Oh no, not at all. To your point, I think it is incredibly critical. Um, it's something I'm still working on every day. I don't see myself as an A storyteller, and that's probably an area where I can kind of improve my own capabilities. Um, but yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more on that of the skills that a CEO has, like storytelling, is arguably the most important.
0: Just quickly on that, as you as you as you look to to get better and continuously learn on that front, what would be in your mind a way to do that? Is it to take a course like maybe you're doing something now? I'm just curious. uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there probably are interesting courses out there. I try to spend a lot of time both workshopping my own stories with like whether it's other founders or investors or folks who are around the business. We actually try to like test Mm -hmm. some of those, even from a marketing standpoint. Oh, that's smart. And then, I, yeah, and then I spent a lot of time listening to other founders and how they've kind of walk through their own storytelling. So actually, interestingly enough, there's um, a podcast out at the moment by First Round Capital, who's like one of the better known like earliest stage like seed funds. Um, and they interviewed this guy named David Cancel, who uh, runs a company called Drift, and is like a five time founder, like former like BBA Product at HubSpot. And he spends actually a lot of that conversation like talking about like storytelling. And how like storytelling is a thing that dictates, you know, which features they build and don't build, which integrations they pursue and don't pursue, and how he tries to like infuse a culture of storytelling internally to the point where like they actually have like as a part of their onboarding process, like a storytelling like like module that every employee has to like learn and get better at, you know, because it's so critical to the way that
0: they operate.
1: And so it's just an interesting, you know, an interesting dovetail into this conversation. Very cool. I
0: should check that out um so speaking of storytelling um you know time that kind of tells the story of four degrees and this is kind of i think it's a nice segue uh because from from my understanding obviously i did a demo we spoke about this on the side aside from the podcast obviously um i think why you created four degrees has a lot to do with your experience being on the investment side of working either as a consultant kind of as a a, not kind of as an investment banker, sorry, as a VC, I should say, but they, they kind of have a similar context is where I was going to go with this, whether it's a VC or investment bank or consultant, the way they handle relationships essentially uh, is very um, synonymous in, in weird ways, right? Different con- content, but similar context. What was the pain point that led you to one day, and I don't know if you were at risk when you thought of the idea or, or what the what the situation was, but just curious, what was that t- like light bulb That was like, you know what, this is it. Finally, this is the moment I'm going to take the leap of faith.
1: You know, I don't know that there was a singular light bulb moment that I led myself and Michael Bender to leave Pritzker to to join, uh, to really start running on this company. I would almost call it like the accumulation of realizations, right? So I think to your point, uh, It was incredible to us just how important the relationship network of the firm was. Like the point where like during our Monday morning meetings as a collective, like a decent chunk of our conversation would revolve around like, hey, you know, we're trying to help one of our portfolio companies do X or Y. Or, hey, we're actually evaluating this deal and we need to learn more about this particular space. And one of the most common questions is like, hey, who do we know that might be, you know, a diligence expert we can tap into for this? Or do we know anyone at a large corporation here that we can help introduce this this company to? And so that was, you know, a common refrain, not only in those collective meetings, but honestly in the hundreds of other interactions we were having with each other throughout the week. And... Each time, what would usually happen is we would either kind of jump into our CRM system, which was Salesforce at the time, which missed a lot of context. Um, and then when that didn't work, we would try it on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a phenomenal platform for a lot of things. But when it comes to actually understanding the strength of a relationship and really like how real that relationship can actually is, like it generally falls flat on that dimension. And so it led to a lot of kind of dead ends and kind of false alarms. And so kind of the I guess the consistent kind of realization, the consistent kind of banging your head against the wall over time gets you tired (laughs) about like banging your head into that wall. And you and you recognize it as an opportunity to do things significantly
0: better. Dude, I, I can speak to that, especially being on on that side that you're speaking about. We have the, the the weekly team meetings as well, just talking about different things that are going on in our worlds and where we can help uh, either private or, or or on the path to to going public companies. And and the funny part is like with Salesforce, if you have let's say ten people on a team, each you know implementing things in Salesforce, or if something happens on a stakeholders' part, a change or, or whatever, you need a dedicated person to be on on top of this, like orchestrating. Otherwise things fall apart really quickly, right? And then with LinkedIn, one of the things that resonate is the fact that, to your point, you can have 15,000 connections. And this is how you know what you're saying is true. Just one simple example. Hey Aborde, I saw that you're connected to the CFO of ABC. Would you mind making a, an intro? Your reply, hey George, man, we're just connected um, to be honest, and we've never really engaged, right? But you kind of, and you're like, wait, what? I'm connected to the CFO of ABC since, since when, <laughs> you know? Totally.
1: Totally. I get that. It happens all the time, right? To the point where I imagine anyone who's listened to this conversation has a story, if not multiple stories that exactly reflect what you've described. And I think speak to the challenge.
0: Yeah. So you understood the challenge. What was the next kind of first step? What helps, I think, is that you you had a co-founder and a person you worked with already. That's like half the battle, dudes, of just even, you know, putting this together. But what was that like the next immediate step? How did you actually develop this for people listening?
1: Yeah, so really, there were two steps we were pursuing in parallel. So step one is we had a decent idea of what it was we wanted to build that we thought could be an interesting, like minimum viable product. And so we just started on the path of like starting to implement some of those ideas. But at the same time, we said, well, look, you know, we know we have this problem. And we know like internally at our firm, we have this problem. But like, how big of a problem is this really, right? Like, I think it's very easy and very, yeah it's, yeah, it's very easy for us to essentially drink our own Kool-Aid and be like, yeah, we're going to build this and the world's going to love it. And it's a huge problem for everyone. And so we should go do this. And so we said, well, no, let's go have a lot of conversations with a lot of different kinds of people Mm -hmm. and just ask the questions around like, how real is this, how real is this a problem for them? Like what are they doing today to try to solve this? As they think about the stack rank of like issues that they have in their own careers or lives at the moment, like, are they even mentioning this? Does this even show up on the radar? Um, and if we have enough of these conversations, we're not only going to get a sense whether this is kind of worth doing, but we're also going to get a sense for whom this is a big enough problem for us to go and spend real time targeting. And so kind of we were doing those two things in parallel, building the MVP and having a lot of those conversations. We probably had something on the order of like 100, 150 odd conversations. So like, And we like honestly wrote down notes after every single one and like scored them and all that sort of stuff. And so that gave us conviction that there was a problem that really existed and that we needed to, done well that we could go off and solve that pretty interestingly. And then we started to get the MVP in the hands of users and monitoring how they used it and identifying where the roadblocks were and beginning to iterate against that.
0: Gotcha. No, that, that's super helpful. I think, I mean, I, I hope people didn't, for, didn't skip on, on the kind of the tactics that you used, but in terms of coming, like, first of all, it was a, it was a large enough sample size that it wasn't biased, right? It wasn't like four friends of yours. Like, Hey, you know, can you give me like affirmation of what I'm doing? It was uh, likely a hundred, people mixed of, of different industries or right i think that's number one number two you prioritized uh the the list is that what you were saying like so after feedback you you were able to prioritize different different segments is that what you were trying to do
1: that's exactly right so like there are some for whom like this wasn't going to be a problem at all or where it, the very least if it was a problem it wasn't something that they were spending any real time trying to fix and then there were others who had some combination of like three or four spreadsheets hooked up together and like all of these other things. And they could directly tell you a story about how that spreadsheet tied back to like ROI for like how they were spending their time and their business's time and attention. And so those naturally were much higher up on the list for us.
0: Got it. Yeah. So it's kind of like the, the priority of importance to the user and even to the ones that it, it didn't seem important. Understanding why, right? Like was it just an internal, you know, thing or was it just the politics of having to implement a new platform? whatever, like every company is going to have different reasons, but I think that would be pretty critical as well. Absolutely. Nice. So you did the MVP that gave you enough of like, you know, uh, I guess a conclusion to at least take a bet on this. You had your MVP and you were seeing how people, you know, I guess, implemented the the platform, used the features, um, you know, got feedback as to what they would like to add or, or not see. And when, when did you actually start feeling that this was, legit like you know what I mean that feeling as an entrepreneur when you're like wow like I actually have something here whether it's by way of users customers employees a logo on the door what was that feeling for you
1: yeah so it's probably two things the first is when we started to very clearly see a cohort of users like flatten out what I mean by that is like whenever you have like a new, when you sign up a bunch of folks, you're usually going to see some drop off in the early days, but then over time it comes down to like a set of folks who are consistently coming back and using the product regularly. It's like fitting a real need in their lives and they've built habits around it. And so when we first started to see that consistency, that was really interesting. And then the second is when we started to see like organic referral, right? So when people were like telling each other about what it was that we were doing in a way that we weren't a part of the loop on, right? So like people out in the wild were hearing about this recognizing that oh this sounds like it could solve a problem for me and then coming inbound to us and essentially banging on the door and trying to get their hands on it that led us to believe okay we've got something that's working
0: gotcha no maybe it makes a lot of sense and then just the last question on four degrees before we shift just a little bit on the on the personal side of things um i'm not sure i think you've raised capital if i'm not mistaken um, mm-hmm sometimes you know crunch based book dude these things are hilarious you know in the sense that you can get it really wrong you know oh like i saw that you raised 100 million and you're like what are you talking about you know
1: that would be nice <laughs>
0: <I suck laughs> I that, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. complaining uh but just hey, we, think, gotta go on the,
1: we gotta go on the team the tmx
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly man you come around here dude that's what the venture right? is for. but uh j- just a quick thing man about like uh, the process of raising cap and being on the other side like how was that for you uh, to sit across, let's say a VC, an angel, whoever that was, and pitching as a company, and not as an investor.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's humbling, right? Like you, you learn a ton from being <laughs> on the other side of the table. That's for sure. Is it harder? Um, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. No, I mean, look, there's. There's certainly huge benefit for me having been on the other side of the table in a few different ways. Mm -hmm. The first is that there is connectivity. And so, like, if you think about one of the hardest parts of like having a conversation with an investor, it's like having some sort of either pre-existing relationship or warm introduction that can help get you in the door. And so the combination of one, actually knowing a lot of investors directly, you know, having had a pre-existing relationship or two, knowing others who were well connected to investors that was trying to get in front of made that process a way more straightforward. So that was like a huge benefit. And then the second is having been on the other side of the table, I have a decent mental model for like the kinds of questions someone's asking about a business. And when they say one thing, what the underlying like question or objection might be behind it um, that is being brought up, right? And so with those two things, I think relative to the average founder probably gives me some sort of like advantage there. That being said, like, I mean, fundraising hard, just period. Like I think in general, well, not even general, I would say there's like 99% of companies for whom fundraising is really difficult. And then like 1% of companies for whom fundraising is incredibly easy because everyone is excited about being a part of their journey. Yeah. Um, and we were part of the 99%. So definitely got plenty of no's definitely had a uh, lot of, you know, have your, your list or your, your set of conversations you want to have and they kind of <laughs> taking them off one at a time and recognizing that it's a little bit of a numbers game. Uh, so yeah, it's challenging. It's challenging. And, uh, definitely gave me a lot of respect for entrepreneurs who go through that process and who went through that process when I was on the other side of the table.
0: Yeah, man, I, like it's exactly what you're saying is, is what I felt as well. Like even when I was at OWL, when I tried to do certain ventures on the side, like book back, it, it always like being on the side to me feels easier, right? Cause it's not like when I was on the other side, exactly what you were saying, you're, you know, you're managing the company at the same time. You're trying to grow it. Every user is critical. You're doing customer success. Mm-hmm. You're doing everything while being on these calls as well. So it's so taxing. And mentally, you kind of have to be very strong, I would say, right? And it's easy to say that. Like, I think people in sales might resonate, uh, but it's different also when it's literally your your company. Like, oh, yeah. sometimes a no can feel like, like your self-worth. You know, like, I don't like the company, i.e. I don't like you kind of thing, even though that's not the case, but you have to get beyond that mindset.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you are putting yourself on the line in every single one of these conversations because you've kind of already put... Exactly. Maybe not every, you put everything into the company right? vulnerable, and then, yeah. right. Um, and in every single one of these, you need to go in with like high energy. You're trying to give the best exactly. possible impression of everything. And yeah, to your point, right. The average founder, right? if it takes, you know, 50 conversations for you to get your round done or 60 conversations for you to get your round done. That probably means you dealt with like 45 to 50 people being like, nope, 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 nope. nope. <laughs> like lots of you different iterations back, you, you know, to so like, Exactly. Out. Exactly. Ghosting you, all that sort of stuff. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It takes it takes a very different emotional toll um, being on this side of the table than it did on the other side. Or honestly, I'd argue with them being in sales because sales at the end of the day, it's not you in the same way that it is um, when you're when you're. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah, it, it obviously has a lot of similarities, you know, like in terms of metrics and, and maybe your financial position, or whatever, but it's still not the same as if like, this is your baby, right? so, like what everybody says. Um, so yeah, it, it's tough, man. Uh, speaking, I want to get quickly to the, to the mental health aspect, but just one last thing on, on that part, because you mentioned that you had a, a big network already. For those who don't, and that's often the difficulty, right? And, and I see, you know, stuff through LinkedIn and email and it's, And when I can, I try to like write back to to a founder, just giving like honest, critical feedback, right? Just to say like, listen, I'm doing this for you, man. This is just not going to work, you know, or like try it this way. So curious for someone who doesn't have enough of a network, what should they be thinking about in terms of raising cap?
1: Yeah, I think a few different things. The first is I would be proactive about trying to build that network out piece by piece. And the way I would probably do it um, is by well, really a few things. The first is I would reach out directly to other founders. Other founders will generally uh, like raise their hands or actually be interested in helping founders, right? So I think we all, when you go through the go through the battle, you have a healthy respect for anyone else who's chosen to raise their hand and jump in the arena, so to speak. Uh, and so if there are things I can do to, to help somebody and they reach out to me asking for 15 minutes of my time, like I'll do it, right? And I have no problems doing that. Because you know what it feels um, like to be on that side. Exactly. Yeah. And I... And I think that's true of a lot of founders is that it's a very like give first and like pay it forward kind of community. And so by building relationships with founders, not only do you get like the opportunity to get the very like tactical and real advice with people in like a way that's very low pressure, but when those relationships are built up, if those founders are ones who've raised capital before or who've met other investors, like their network can ultimately be super helpful to you. And so that's kind of one thing I would, uh, one piece of advice I'd give. The second is to try to embed yourself in like entrepreneurial communities and ecosystems. So for instance, here in Chicago, at least post COVID, hopefully 1871 goes back to being one of the homes where a lot of these things occur. And so like it becomes a place where when you build the relationship with the program staff at 1871 or other founders in the 1871 communities or the like, it, their network again becomes one that you can leverage to get in and start to have some of these conversations and start to make this pretty real. Um, And then the third is I would kind of view this as a bit of a, a long-term game. And so I think there are opportunities when you're not raising capital or when you don't directly need the money in that moment, to actually just do some outreach to folks so that VCs or the angels or the like, and to say, hey, look, I'm not raising money now. Um just Here's fine. what I'm working on. I'd, I'd love to, sh- to keep you on my update list or something along those lines. So you can see how we're progressing, like, is that okay? The vast majority of the time, like people will say yes, or maybe they say no, or like ghost you. But like at the end of the day, if you convert 25% of those, like over a big enough sample size, that becomes like a meaningful group of people. And then even if they themselves don't end up being the right investors for you, like their connectivity can be incredibly important. And you started to build up a relationship that can last you for a long time. So I think there are lots of routes, um, but it does require some forethought.
0: Yeah, it's so critical, man. Just your last part, like in terms of being proactive. Right, being that fish that rides the wave, not the one that gets caught. Uh, and it, it's the same thing with your network. Like it's always better to build a network when you don't need one, right? Not to, not to say that it's need, need is not the best word because it seems transactional. But what I mean is like in a time like COVID, as an example, if you lose your job unexpectedly, everybody's rushing just to to, to build relationships for for the pursuit of something. But that's the worst time because it, it looks transactional, right? The best time is when you know I don't really need any. In fact, I'm here to help you. How I how I can be of value and all those good stuff. And I think that that leads to probably better results. Similar thing with capital, right? Yeah, I couldn't
1: agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think there are oftentimes benefits that can come from building a relationship that may like in the short term look transactional. But I think if you go forth with the pursuit or belief that relationships are valuable in and of themselves, you'll be surprised at like the long run benefits that come from it. Yeah,
0: a sale earns you a commission, friendship earns you a fortune, right? That that saying. Um,
1: There you go.
0: Uh, so, so just want to spend a couple minutes, uh, want to be sensitive to your time, but on the first, first of all, can I just acknowledge that we're twinning today with our sweaters? Yeah. Uh, look at this. I like it. You have an awesome, I don't know. If, is that a keyboard, dude? I, I keep like, is this like, a
1: keyboard? No, it's not. Uh, it's, uh, oh, basically okay. it's like a print. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. It looks like a keyboard from here. It looked like it was lighting up. I was like, what? Yeah, it does <laughs> kind
1: of, <laughs> it does look like my Mac keyboard. Now that you mentioned it, it's kind of weird.
0: Just from this side. Yeah. Um, so on the personal side, obviously, you know, some folks in Chicago obviously might know you very well, especially in the startup ecosystem, you mentioned 1871, for those who don't know you maybe as intimately or as personally, just on that side, like what, what do you do on the side of building four degrees that keep you mentally stable? Um, what are some cool things that, that people can know about you, I guess?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're cool. Um, so (laughs) I, I I guess so in my college days, I was on the track team. Uh, and so like physical before? fitness no I was a thrower actually so I was a, a discus thrower and a hammer thrower particularly like, hammer and weight um oh, the board in, man. this is a <laughs> hammer <throw>. mm-hmm. <laughs> thank yeah. god this is virtual all right <laughs> right exactly <laughs> uh so I guess that kind of built a habit of like physical fitness for me so like I like that's something that's huge for me in terms of saying like stable, like mentally well, all that sort of stuff. So I try to make sure to build in time for that pretty much every day. Right. Um I'm a big reader. So nowadays it mostly takes the form of audio books, but like also sitting down reading Kindle, uh insta paper or a pocket where I'm like storing articles to read for later. And so all of what those are are, like what are you reading? Uh, right now I'm listening to uh the Wright brothers, uh, a biography on them. Um it's really interesting actually I actually tweeted something about it the other day um where is the thing that struck me about it is they go to Kitty Hawk and Kitty Hawk is, you know, the place where they're known for all their flying experiments. At the time, what I didn't realize is Kitty Hawk was like a super isolated place. Like you had to like get on a boat and like travel through relatively choppy waters for like, you know, a couple of days to get there. Um, The Mm -hmm. people there were generally really poor. So like, like the houses didn't actually have like plaster in them. Um, Most people had two to three like changes of outfits. No one had any savings, like all that sort of stuff. And so you can imagine like these two relatively well-dressed guys from Ohio who ran a bicycle shop, like take this boat with like a contraption in it. Like get there, start to sew and like hammer this thing together while like asking to borrow your iron or things along those lines. They stare out at the water, like watching birds fly for hours a day, and like are flapping their arms and stuff because they're trying to learn about flight from like watching the birds. And they tell you like they're gonna fly, and that just see, it just seems like
0: <laughs> what you would think they like were crazy, wizard, probably, yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah. You would think they were crazy or on drugs or something, <laughs> and like they they pulled it off.
0: Like, they Can you legitimately... imagine what, like someone who's spectating would feel like though, like when they actually did it, what their reaction must have been like
1: they probably i mean i imagine they freaked out right? like that <laughs> man like so yeah that's the book i'm reading right now it's really good
0: very cool so and and so you read you read a lot of books obviously the the, the fitness side of things is so critical too i'm just i'm glad you're, you're mentioning that because that often doesn't i think that's changing though but you know the connotation needs to be like grind all day hustle 100 percent, whatever it is and and i think now it's changing thanks to in large part weirdly uh, to ariana huffington who talks a lot about like sleep right i don't know if I'm crediting it in the right way, but I think she really pushed the needle on that one. Like she made it okay to be like, dude, I sleep nine hours a day, you know?
1: Yeah, I think there really has been a shift around people seeing like sleep and like sleep fitness being really important. So Ariana Huffington's big. I know a lot of folks read like Why We Sleep. I read that book, actually thought it was really interesting. It talked about a lot of the both not like productivity benefits, but also like the health implications of like not getting enough sleep, which was really interesting and actually Chicago is home to a company that actually is I know you one of like the leading companies in sleep fitness called Rise Science and so I think it's an example of just people recognizing the value of this more and more
0: Gotcha. you. Awesome. Well, listen, I got I got just one more for you. I, I really wanted to wrap up with this one. You talk a lot about impact. Uh, that that's obviously something very important to you from the time, you know, you were in Harvard recognizing that all the way to now. I'm just curious like when because this year was was definitely a crazy one. I mean from the pandemic Uh, from the Black Lives Matter movement that happened, right, all throughout the U.S. And I think that actually got caught globally. I mean, I I even saw friends in Canada going through it. Curious with that in mind, how has that shift this year impacted your definition for impact and what you're trying to do uh, in in part, even as a a co-founder yourself? You know, it's interesting.
1: I don't, it feels weird to say that I don't know that it impacted my focus much, and mm. that I think a lot of the things I cared about were things that ultimately were really important in this time. I've always been someone who's been, who's cared a lot about mm. racial justice, who's cared a lot about figuring out how I could use the access and connectivity and resources I've had to Your specifically platform. try to impact, exactly, specifically impact that issue. And I mean, I suspect that. On the margin, I probably spent more time having more conversations about that this year. And I think that's partially due to, you know, as you described, I think there was been a broader awakening to a lot of these points. And so that's led for to people asking for help, resources, or ideas that I can help participate in. And so, like, I've naturally been happy to do that. But, um, yeah, this has always been something I've cared about. Um, I'm excited to see that a lot more people are spending a lot more time on this. And I think. I really do think that there's actually some pretty cool opportunities to see Chicago, particularly in the entrepreneurial space, like advancing that
0: way. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.